please stand once again for the reading of the scripture. <laughs> I wasn't going to have them stand, but since you had the choir keep standing, so I thought, ah, that's good, that's good. It's always a joy to listen and watch the Pansier's work, isn't it? Absolutely. You have to imagine Paul writing this letter to the Philippians from a very dark place. He was in prison. Prisons in the ancient world were not happy places. <laughs> they were about the most difficult place you can imagine and then put something more into it than that. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last have you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. The word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. When my older son was a toddler, he would often help himself to an outrageous amount of whatever it is he wanted. Sweets, candy, juice. From his parents, he would often hear, Peter, no, that's too much. So whenever we asked him before serving him something he really wanted, how much do you want? His automatic response was, I want too much. <laughs> we Americans love our too much. From supersized fast food to venti lattes to cars built on the frame of military vehicles to TVs the size of what was once called the living room picture window. <laughs> we love our too much. You know, one of the mushroom fast growth industries for the last two decades has been storage units. Over a 400% increase in spending on space to store our stuff in the last 20 years. There were no such places in the early 1960s when my family, in which I grew up, of seven people lived in a house of about 1,500 square feet. If you've ever moved and packed up your belongings yourself, you probably have asked, how did we get all this stuff? When my wife and I were in charge of selling off her dad's collections after he was moved into a retirement facility, we vowed we would not saddle family with the yoke of dealing with all of our stuff. Too much. For this Christmas, a family member took all the films my parents had, uh, beginning with their wedding in 1949 and extending through the 1960s, and had them professionally edited together and gave them on to each of us in a little jump drive. What a tremendous gift this was. Many of the videos taken were taken on Christmas morning where my dad always tried to get my mom in curlers before she got out of them. 
Um, from about the time I was nine months old with pacifier permanently attached to my mouth and army crawling the floor in my sleeping bag pajamas, and the videos ended during the time when I was a teenager, one of the changes I noticed through the clips of those years is that the boys' sideburns grew longer and the gifts under the tree spread out further and further. We had more money and my mom bought more and more presents. Notice how phrases like, was Santa good to you this year? Indicate how we think more often equals better. Do you know which day of the year adds up to the greatest level of destruction on the planet? Christmas Day. Consider the carbon footprint of all of our travel. Wrapping paper that can't be recycled. All the plastic that encases things made out of plastic. The energy expended in fulfilling the supply chains from raw materials to manufacturing, from packaging to shipping and retailing the excess food and drink. In relation to our planet's life, we, the wealthy Western nations, have a supersized Christmas every year. And I'm not speaking from any position of superiority here as one whose education was paid for by a father whose work was plastic injection mold making and who has traveled from Tulsa to Chicago for Christmas nearly every year for the last 28. In terms of the health of the planet, the carbon footprint we leave every year we celebrate Christmas is too much. So my Christian friends, the moral and spiritual question for us, I think, is how much is enough? The question of enough is an uncomfortable question for us. It implies there's a limit, and we may have reached or even exceeded that limit. And we Americans do not like being told that we have or are using too much. I'll never forget the scene of President Jimmy Carter sitting in a chair with shelves of books behind him in his sweater, giving a speech to we the American people asking us to turn down our thermostats because we were in the midst of an energy crisis. He said, in effect, we're using too much energy. He implored us to turn down the heat and put on our sweaters. To say that Americans did not like this speech is a tremendous understatement. One of the best stewardship sermons I've heard a long time ago now included a bit of survey data. When people of middle class or more wealthy households were asked, how much money would be enough for you? The most frequent response was, a little more than I have now. Just a little more would be enough, until I have a little more. One night many years ago, neighbors invited us for dinner. These, these two neighbors would often argue in front of us, which made for sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes amusing occasions. During that dinner, Mark, not his real name, pestered Carmela, not her real name, about what in a pickup truck. Carmela's response was, Mark, you always want one more thing. If you buy a pickup, 
Will that finally be enough? Will that pickup make you happy? Great question. Will that fill in the blank finally be enough? The question how much is enough is one of the most important questions of our era, I believe. I like the way uh, sociologist and author Brene Brown thinks about the importance of enough. She says the opposite of scarcity is not abundance. The opposite of scarcity, she says, is enough. Now one might disagree with her claim on what the opposite of abundance is, but I think she's on to something awfully important for us. Important materially, morally, and spiritually. Defining how much is enough and when necessary, scaling back to enough from a place of too much is, as I said, one of the most important moral and spiritual questions of our time. So I want to talk about enough. How truly foreign to our, go on, you deserve it, ears, are Paul's words to the Philippians. I have learned to be content in whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed or going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment is not an American virtue. Striving for more is. That is why I say Paul's words sound strange. He's, he's playing an unheard tune on an instrument we don't recognize. But are his words not also attractive? I am sure you've known people, as have I, who are centered, ground, uh, grounded, clear-eyed, and grateful. There aren't a lot of those people around, but I have known some. There's such an attractive vibe around them. They have something or they've given their lives over to something or someone that enables them to see and experience life on a different platform from the rest of us. We want to know what they have and how do they get it. I have learned to be content in all things. Note Paul says he learned. That would mean there's hope for us. Because if he learned how to be content, so might we. Paul, as I said earlier, is writing to the Philippians from prison. Wherever he was in prison, we can be assured he experienced every deprivation a prisoner can. Hunger, excess heat or excess cold, depending on the season, vermin, Whatever food, water, or creature comforts he had would have come from friends. They would not have been provided by the prison. But from prison, he writes this beautiful letter, which includes some of the most contemplation-worthy passages in all of his letters. Have this mind among yourselves, as it was in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, think on these things. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. 
How did Paul learn to be content in whatever his circumstances were? Surely he had to experience all kinds of suffering, which he did, beating, shipwrecks, imprisonment, harassment, slander. Paul was not an armchair philosopher or king sitting in his comfy barca lounger of a throne with full belly and wine-sued spirit spouting wisdom. Some people could experience all Paul's repeated deprivations and either give up or become bitter. But Paul had learned to be content. Now, Paul does not tell us fully what the secret to contentment is, to having enough regardless of what one has, but he does give us a very big clue. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The him who strengthens is, of course, Jesus Christ, and Paul claimed to have a powerful spiritual, even mystical relationship with the risen Lord. Now, all of us are not privy to a mystical relationship with Jesus. That's a gift, not something that one can say, I want to acquire that, and then just pull it off the shelf. But all of us could follow Paul's path, for Paul followed the way of Jesus. Jesus' way is the path of him who proclaimed good news to the poor and succor to the brokenhearted. It is a path of asking for daily bread, not tomorrow's bread, not an extra helping, not too much, our daily bread. It's the path of one who looked with compassion on the rich young man, who was quite spiritual, except that his attachment to his stuff was stronger than his desire to follow Jesus. It is the path of the one who told the parable about the man who received the gift of a miraculous harvest, and instead of sharing his gifted windfall with his community, the man kept all that too much for himself. What if we Christians went into Christmas next year saying in terms of our stuff, I have enough. We have enough. Yes, I know that stance would wreak havoc with the economy, which is premised upon ever-expanding markets of making and selling more stuff. But think of it. What presents would you exchange if you were not exchanging more stuff? How many years do you think it would take for you and your family before the new present-giving habit did not feel strange? How many years of the practice would it take us to learn to be content? You know, like those Who's in Hillville when the Grinch came to steal Christmas, took all their stuff, and they, the Grinch couldn't understand. But I didn't steal Christmas from them, did I? Long ago, and it seems like a lifetime or two ago, in a therapy session at a very dark moment in my own life, my therapist, who knew I was clergy, said to me, do you mind if I give you some spiritual advice? You know that hole you're feeling in your gut? That feeling of being a scooped out pumpkin in your middle? Don't try to fill it too quickly. That is a God-sized space, and only God belongs there one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. 
For there is the secret to contentment, I think. With whom or what do we fill the God-sized space each of us has? If only God belongs there, then stuffing that space with too much of whatever will result only in feeling the need for more. For only God can fill that space. St. Francis knew this. He knew how possession of one thing might give rise to desire for more and then more. One scholar records this, that Francis said, uh, one medieval, medieval source records his response to a novice who asked for a psalter. Well, when you have a psalter, then you want a breviary. And when you have a breviary, you will install yourself on a throne like a great prelate, and you will command your brother, bring me my breviary. Only God can be enough. John Wesley knew the secret of contentment, too. In one of his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, he notes that many Christians, in effect, seek to put both God and things into that God-sized space, and it doesn't go well. This is what Wesley said. Does not every man see that he cannot comfortably serve both God and mammon? That to trim between God and the world is the sure way to be disappointed to both and to have no rest either in one or the other. How uncomfortable a condition must he be in who, having the fear but not the love of God, has only the toils and not the joys of religion. He has religion enough to make him miserable, but not enough to make him happy. Many of you have heard the following somber and weighty words from the Wesleyan Covenant Service, still used in many United Methodist and Methodist uh, family churches on New Year's Eve. Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart give it all to your pleasure and disposal. For Paul, for Francis, for Wesley, giving all in following the Jesus is the secret of learning contentment, of having enough. They constantly attended to their soul's God-sized space to ensure they were not substituting stuff for Christ. Marie Kondo, who has become world famous for her systems and practices of organizing one's life and one's stuff, advises her followers to hold an item one owns or might buy and ask the question, does it spark joy? If you can't say yes, then let it go. Perhaps the moral and spiritual question for us, for Christians in our day, facing the global challenges created by our too much culture is, do I already have enough? And remember, whatever the object is that's supposed to make our lives better, our stuff can never fill the space 
that belongs only to God.